Our text today comes from Luke chapter 7, if you want to be pulling it up on your uh, your devices or, or getting out your Bibles. Uh, Jesus is going to interact with two different people, and you couldn't find two more different people uh, in, the, in the ancient world. Uh, the first is a Roman soldier, um, an officer in the Roman army, and then we've got a Jewish widow who has lost her son, her only son. So uh, uh, you, you've got these two, but Luke has made them next door neighbors. <laughs> They're sitting right next to each other, side by side in Bibles ever since uh, we've, we've had New Testaments. And so uh, I, I just want to begin by pointing out that this is not random. This is just not kind of something that happened Luke is deliberately and intentionally putting together his gospel to teach us a message, to point out who Jesus is. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus's sermon at uh, Nazareth in the synagogue. And there he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And from that point on, he declared that he had the spirit of God on him and that he was fulfilling God's mission, and it was the beginning of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God of, uh, onto earth itself. His mission was to preach the time of God's favor, the time of God's mercy, the time of God's goodness to all people, uh, regardless of whether they were insiders or outsiders, powerful or weak, rich or poor, good or not so much good, <laughs> men and women, all people across the board were now uh, able to receive God's goodness and his mercy. Jesus came from a future time, the end time, and he came to show us what God's kingdom is going to look like. He has begun that process. We're not there yet, but we're heading in that direction. His mission was to bring the heaven, the kingdom of heaven to us while we lived here on earth. And we see Jesus, Jesus living this message out, this mission out, in the text that uh, that we'll read today. As we read these texts, I'm going to ask you to try and put yourself in the position of these two individuals, the soldier and, and then the widow. Try and feel what they're feeling and get a sense of what this was really doing to them and how then they experience Jesus's grace and mercy uh, in their lives. So first, we're going to read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the uh, the faith, the amazing faith, um, the victorious faith of a Roman officer. Uh, Luke 7, 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this, it was the Sermon on the Plain, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, a highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I, I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need say go and they go or come and they come. 
And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Now, the rank for this soldier, the older translations would refer to him as a centurion. It's a rank that's probably equivalent to a captain in our modern day army. Means he had status, power, resources, authority. Uh, He was most certainly not a Jew. Uh, He was a Gentile. We don't know if he was Roman, but he might have been Greek or he might have been from another country. But he was most certainly not a Jewish uh, as, as an officer in the Roman army. But he was a part of the forces that were oppressing the Jewish people. He wouldn't, not, he wouldn't have been a friend in normal situations to the Jewish people. Now, he had a servant or a slave who was deathly ill. And we can assume that he had already exhausted his resources, his connections, his favors to try and get this servant healed. It was a servant that he cared for deeply, which gives us a little insight to the kind of heart that this man had. What also gives us further insight is knowing the kinds of things he did for the Jewish people. You know, I imagine some of you know what it's like to be sick or to be diagnosed with an illness that you just can't fix yourself. You know, Others of us know what it's like to hear of a friend or a loved one who's sick and in need of great help. And we want to help, but there's just not much we can do. It hurts. It's scary. It's overwhelming. And that's where this soldier was. He had heard about Jesus. Doesn't seem like he had ever met him face to face, but he sends some Jewish leaders because he had a relationship with the Jewish people. The Jewish leaders tell Jesus that this man deserves to be healed because of all the good things he has done for the Jewish people. He's been benevolent. He's been charitable. He even funded a building project for the synagogue. Do you ever find yourself thinking that you deserve to receive God's blessing? That because of who you are and where you are in life and where you are in church and and what your life looks like, the good things that you've done, you deserve to be heard by God and you deserve to receive preferential treatment. Daniel... Borstein is a historian that suggests that Americans suffer from all too extravagant expectations. In his book that was written in 1962 and then released again uh, at the 50th anniversary called The Image, he makes these observations about Americans. He made it back in 62. We expect anything and everything. We expect the the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars that are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move, ever more neighborly, to go to the church of our choice yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and yet be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived 
and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world could ever offer. Expectations. I do good. I deserve God to do good for me. Now, that was the perception of the Jewish leaders that this man deserves to be saved, to be healed, to be treated with deference. But that wasn't his perspective. When when he has an opportunity to express himself, he says exactly the opposite. He says, I am not worthy to be in Jesus's presence. I know who I am. And of all the things I am, worthy is not on my list. And then he makes this reference to his authority and power. As a soldier, he was under some people and then he was over others. He received orders and he was expected to fulfill those orders. He gave orders and he expected those orders to be fulfilled. He sees in Jesus someone who was receiving power from on high and assumed that Jesus would simply obey whatever orders he received from the higher powers, which would be God himself. So he asked Jesus, don't need to come. I don't need to see you. You don't need to see me. Just say the word and it will happen because that's how it works in systems of authority. And then Jesus is amazed. You know, there's only two times in the Bible that the, uh, that the scriptures tell us Jesus was amazed. Once was at a lack of faith uh, when he preached in Nazareth. And there was so much unbelief and rejection of him that he could do very few miracles there, the text tells us. The second time he's amazed is right here. At the faith of a Roman Gentile officer of the army. Jesus was amazed at his faith. And without seeing him, without seeing the servant, the servant was healed. Let's go on to the next part of our text in verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, uh, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the city gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin or to the wooden plank that they were carrying him on, touched it, and the pallbearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. You know, this story is so different on so many levels. You have a poor Jewish widow whose son, only son, has already died. She's going with the funeral procession on the way to bury him, perhaps in a cave, perhaps where the husband was buried. And in those days, uh, male-dominated society, women were only as financially secure as their husbands or then their male sons. Once the husband died, 
the widow then became dependent on the son because he was the heir. Women could not inherit property. Now that his, her, hus, her son has died, she is at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. She is without anything, completely destitute with no help. Put yourselves in the widow's shoes. I think most of us at some point in our life have felt all alone facing some situation that's beyond our control. Some of you know the pain of losing your spouse, some perhaps even throughout this pandemic, and others of you know the pain of losing a child. Some of you have experienced both these losses. Death is always sad, but in some cases it's more so. Joseph Bailey knew the loss, what the loss of a child was like, in fact, he and his wife lost three sons, one at 18 days after surgery, one at five years with leukemia, and a third at 18 years after a sledding accident. So when Joseph Bailey writes about the death of a child, people listened. And here are some of his words. Of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jung's words, it is a period placed before the end of the sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. We expect the old to die. The separation is always difficult, but it comes as no surprise. But the child, the youth, life lies ahead with its beauty, its wonder, its potential. Death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young in a way that is different from any other human relationship, a child is bone of his parents' bone, flesh of their flesh. And when a child dies, part of the parents are also buried with the child. I met a man, Joseph says, who was in his 70s. During our first 10 minutes together, he brought the faded photograph of a child out of his wallet. His child, who had died almost 50 years before. The death of a child is certainly one of the greatest agonies possible in this life. Bearing a part of oneself, a period that comes before the end of a sentence, the death of a future, it is a burden that all parents fear. Can you imagine what God felt when he met this widow? Knowing that within a matter of months or very short years, God the Father would also lose to death his only son? And maybe that's what motivated Jesus to have compassion. Because the text tells us that Jesus saw her and his heart went out to her. She, she didn't ask for help. No one did. It was beyond the wildest dreams that Jesus would do something or could do anything. The text says zero about the woman's faith. She was expecting zero from Jesus. And yet it's his compassion that takes initiative to act. Jesus enters into this woman's suffering, enters into her pain, and it moves him to action. He speaks to the dead man. Just think about that for a second. To talk to a corpse. Per perhaps you've experienced something similar, but at a lot of the funerals I've performed when there is the visitation, you'll have different family members talking to the corpse, sharing burdens and expressions of love. 
But I don't know that anyone expects that corpse to rise up. But this dead man heard Jesus, sat up when Jesus told him to get up, and then began to talk. With his resurrection, even though it was temporary because he would eventually die again, with his resurrection, this woman's hope is restored to new life. And with Jesus' resurrection, our hope, all of our hopes, are also restored to new life. So Luke has put these two healing stories side by side, as I said, next door neighbors. In the first story, we have a faith that is so deep, so trusting that it blows Jesus' mind, mind blown. In the second, there's no faith mentioned at all. We don't know whether this Jewish woman believed in Jesus at any level. Yet in both stories, healing takes place. One motivated by a tremendously amazing faith and the other motivated by Jesus's compassion. So where does that leave us today? You know, I think all of us would fit somewhere between an amazing faith and no faith at all. We're somewhere in that spectrum. And all of us would hope that Jesus' compassion is just as strong today as it was 2,000 years ago. So does God heal all our diseases? Well, the answer is already, but not yet. In Jesus, God has begun that process, but there's more to come, so much more. And I'm not convinced that the most mature expression of faith is simply to say, God, I know you're going to heal my loved one right now so that they will not die. I don't know that that's a mature expression of faith. Uh, Perhaps a more mature expression of faith would be something like, God, in this trial that I'm going through, I am confident that whatever the short-term outcome is, You are a God who is compassionate and powerful, and I am trusting in your goodness for me and my family. Even if it takes the rest of human history for that to play out, even if things are not fully resolved until Jesus comes again and establishes his kingdom, I trust you. A mature, amazing faith is a firm conviction, a firm and certain conviction of God's goodness, whatever the short-term outcome is. And so loved ones for whom we pray don't get well and pass. Individuals with lifelong disabilities get prayed for and continue to live with those disabilities. There's nothing wrong with being rich and powerful and at the top of society. We believe that that is a gift from God. But an encounter with Jesus can humble even the most powerful, brings them to their knees, and then fills them with compassion. Likewise, there's nothing wrong with being poor and on the outside of society, but the promise of the gospel is that God suffers with you and will exalt you to the status of everyone else because the high places have been made low. And the low places have been made high. And before God's presence, we are all his children. 
Dr. Rebecca O'Connor was working the night shift at New York Presbyterian Hospital when the 2004 tsunami hit uh, December 26th, day after Christmas. She was watching it on TV. She couldn't believe her eyes. She felt like she had to do something. She was compelled. And so she did. She flew to Sri Lanka along with eight other medical professions, professionals for a two-week medical relief trip. Once they arrived in Sri Lanka, they traveled through 150 miles of destruction before arriving in a downtown area that had been completely devastated. Setting up their clinic in a downtown Sri Lankan mosque, they saw 40 to 100 patients every shift, respiratory problems and foot and leg wounds caused by stepping on debris when wading through water were the most common ailments that they treated. O'Connor and the others soon realized that they were less than a mile from a local hospital and another large clinic. So she asked a Sri Lankan friend, why do the people come to us? The friend said, because at the hospital, someone asks name, age, complaint, and then gives them a sheet of paper and tells them to go wait outside. You sit them down. Ask what's wrong, and then you treat them. You listen to them. O'Connor sums up her thoughts with these words. It seemed that the most valuable therapy we were providing had nothing to do with antibiotics or wound care. By listening to story after heartbreaking story, admiring pictures of families once happy and playing soccer with children who lost everything, we were able to say, without speaking a word, we care about you and we share in your grief. As representatives of God on earth, as imitators of Jesus, we take the initiative to enter into the suffering of the people around us. And once we are compelled to act because of that suffering, we find a way to help. We work towards bringing healing. We work work towards bringing uh, uh, hope into new life, into broken and, and new life into broken lives. So this week, open your eyes, take the initiative, step into someone's suffering, even at a distance, perhaps through text, through a phone call, through a video chat. Step into their suffering, listen to their heart, and then allow God's spirit and his power to move through you to bring healing to those around. May God bless you and bless your day today. Uh, our, one of our elders and brother, Paul Schwepp, is here to lead us through some different thoughts and prayers for the people. God bless you.